and welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. 400 years ago, in August of 1619, more than 20 enslaved African individuals were sold to the Virginia colonists. Slavery was established in the early Connecticut colony, too. Traded, sold, given as gifts, and subjected to beatings as documents attest, the enslaved people of Hartford suffered no less than enslaved people anywhere. In today's episode, Connecticut Explored's Mary Donahue finds out about an innovative model project that uses fine-grained scholarship to uncover the lives of almost 500 African, African-American, and Native Americans buried between 1640 and 1815 in Hartford's oldest historic site, the Ancient Burying Ground. She talks with Dr. Kathy Hermes, professor at Central Connecticut State University, about the project, sponsored by the Ancient Burying Ground Association, and about the new website that makes all this research available with the click of a mouse. Hi, I'm Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. Full disclosure, today's episode is about a project that I've been working on for two years with the Ancient Bearing Ground Association, the nonprofit organization that works with the city of Hartford to maintain and restore the oldest site in Hartford and the only one remaining from the 17th century. From 1640 to the early 1800s, the ancient burying ground was Hartford's primary graveyard. During that period, anyone who died in town, regardless of age, gender, race, or ethnic background, was buried there. Approximately 6,000 people are thought to be buried in the burying ground, including African, African American, and Native Americans. Already listed as a historic site on the National Register of Historic Places and the Connecticut Freedom Trail, We knew, for example, that at least five of the black governors were buried there. But what else could be uncovered about the people of color from the earliest period of the Connecticut colony in Hartford? My guest today is Kathy Hermes, a professor of early American history at Central Connecticut State University. Her research and teaching focus is on native people of the eastern woodlands, legal history, and the history of the Atlantic world in the colonial period. She's currently working on a book manuscript about a Wangump African man who lived in Hartford and Newport, Rhode Island. Welcome to the podcast, Kathy. Thanks, Mary. Thanks for having me. The Ancient Bearing Ground Association put out a call for proposals for a scholar to investigate and write a report about the African, African American, and Native American people buried in the Ancient Bearing Ground. Why did you apply for the job, and what was your vision for this project? Well, when I saw that call for papers, I was very intrigued because I had for a long time been working on the native people in the central Connecticut region, Hartford, down to Middletown, namely the Wangunk people. And I had been using spreadsheets to try to keep track of all the native people that I'd found in various documents in Connecticut history. And so immediately I realized the opportunity to use the spreadsheet idea as a database for all of the people buried in the burying ground who would fall into this category of Native or African peoples. And I had also been working on a number of digital projects. Um, I have a website called Digital Farmington that has a map and a blog. And 
you can use spreadsheets to upload data. And, um, and so what I was thinking about was how could I create something more than a report, a website, something accessible to people using this spreadsheet database technology. And then I had also been working on using Ancestry.com to create family trees for the Wangunk because I found that mapping out family relationships for them, it was actually quite difficult. Ancestry allowed me to pin documents, keep track of my sources, create timelines. So I thought, let's add that to the mix. Then I had also created a program with some CCSU students in computer science called Relationship Tree. Because in working on the Wangunk, what I realized is I couldn't say necessarily uh, whether someone was a maternal aunt or a paternal aunt, but I knew they had a relationship. So I created a program called Relationship Tree. And I realized that for the Native and African people in this burying ground, that was an essential tool because Africans, of course, came often without kin. And so they didn't have biological kin in the beginning to link up to, but they had masters, they had fictive kin, other enslaved people that they formed relationships with, perhaps even white people with whom they were servants in a household. So we used Relationship Tree as adding that dimension to Ancestry.com that you can't do on just a simple genealogical tree. And with those things, I envisioned a website that could bring together all of this genealogical and relationship information from the records in the archives. Now, we're going to have that exact address for that website later, but uh, it's and it's wonderful. It's just amazing. But what were some of the more, I would say, extraordinary or at least unexpected things that you and your team discovered? Well, so first of all, um, one of the things that the ancient burying ground made clear is that there was already a list of people who were buried in the burying ground that existed from 1749 to about, I think, 1807. Um, and these were published lists. And so we started with the published lists, try to extracting names. Now, what I expected was we might find a few more people than what we found in the, in the published lists because they only started in 1749, so I thought we'd find some people before that. I did not expect to find a whole list of people on microfilm in the Connecticut State Library that weren't even included that were known to be buried in the burying ground. Um, so that was a surprise. I was also surprised to find that even within the 1749 to 1807 period, about 115 African people and about five Native people were completely left out, and they were unnamed. They were unnamed in the original records. Um, so the Sexton wrote down when they died, the cause of death, their ages, but not their names. And then most of these were completely left out of any published record. And tell our listeners what, what they would be cited as. And so if they don't have a name, what, what would be written down? Um, Negro man, or just Negro. Negro maid, infant, Negro child, squaw. So all of those are now listed in our database with all of the information that we have about them. And 
I suspect that some of our named people might be duplicated there in the unnamed people. So in other words, we might have found a name for Caesar and a death date or information about him, and he might also be unnamed in another record. But that was a that was a bit of a shock to me. And then I had to, and it was, especially as I was compiling the database, quite an emotional thing to come across all of these uh, just unnamed people whose names had to have been known by the person keeping the record. And it just was, they weren't thought of as important enough to even be listed by their name. Correct. So I knew going into this project that it was going to require hours and hours and hours at the state li- places like the Connecticut State Library and reading a lot of hard-to-read, handwritten records. What kinds of records did you use? So one of the first things we did is we went to the church records that are on microfilm in the state library for the Connecticut First Church, and that's a congregational church because that's what the Puritans were. And after we assembled all of the names from the published database and all the names from the microfilm record, we then went through all of the indices in the Connecticut archives that have been compiled over the years by the state librarians. We went through the name index in the archives and in the subject index for the archives to make sure that we didn't miss anyone. We went through census records. We also used something called the Kingsbury census or the Negro census from 1805 uh, that's at the Harriet Beecher Stowe house. We used Siemens protection certificates, which were certificates issued by the United States government to protect people who were United States citizens from being seized by the British (laughs) or other foreign powers. Now, those start late because they start after 1790, just like the census. But they gave us an idea of who was from Hartford and who other relatives might be. So we were, because any name we found, even if they didn't die in the time period we were looking for, we could then look for families that were associated with them. So tell me a kind of records, let's say the wills or probate records, where people are being passed off as property. That was another source we decided to use. Um, Those are all on Ancestry.com, although not always easily accessible because they aren't always indexed properly. Um, They are all at the state library um, where they are indexed properly. So we went through probate packets and court records looking for anybody who was mentioned in a will. Now, that's a tricky thing because we don't know if all of those people remained in Hartford even if they were owned by someone in Hartford, because they could have been sold subsequently. So we looked for ones where we could also find some kind of death record or indication that they were old and therefore might have died in the time period that we were looking at. You're talking about human beings that are being passed off to other generations. They're being sold to other people. They're being brought here by people who own ships or part of a shipping fortune. Tell us a little bit about that. All right. So in the probate records, one of the things you find is that Native Native and African people are passed on to heirs, right? So they're bequests. Um, We also found newspaper. We also used newspapers and we found ads of people for sale, people who were runaways. We also um, used some of the individual like marriage records and court records And you could see that people were given as wedding gifts. So, for example, um, Andrew and Tamar are a couple that we've done a narrative about 
and they were given by Reverend Timothy Woodbridge and his wife, Abigail Lord Woodbridge, to her son when he got married. And one of their children was also given to the son. And so, so do you, did you ever see a family kind of broken up that way, where maybe a husband and a wife would go in different directions or the children would be willed to different parties? Absolutely. So just using that same example, Andrew and Tamar's son Daniel went with them, but the two girls that they had, Lydia and Isabella, were divided up. And Lydia, at, when Woodbridge died, Lydia went to his daughter, and his daughter lived in Massachusetts. She probably never saw her siblings again. And we don't actually know what happened to Isabella. She may have died or, and again, with probate records, you know, you're relying on somebody who's died, who's alive at the time the owner dies, but you don't necessarily know what happens to them afterwards. So why do you think that these stories that you've uncovered haven't been told till, till now, really? And is there more to find out? Well, I think for one thing, the, the colonial people did not necessarily um, write stories about themselves, right? Whether they were white or black, they didn't tell their own stories very much. So it's left to subsequent generations. The white people who started to write the history of Hartford in the late 19th century had just come out of the Civil War. They did not want to emphasize Connecticut's role in slavery. And I think they sort of deliberately hid the people who were um, enslaved in Hartford and occasionally would have a little anecdote about perhaps some enslaved person who was old or had a special talent or, um, for example, a, a doctor. Um, there was a Dr. Robin who was a, a Native American that was known to cure the king's curse, which was scrofula, which is a terrible sort of tuberculosis that appears outside your body instead of inside. And, and so he was a, a folklore hero. So they kept those stories. But they didn't tell you the real story of how many people were enslaved in, in Hartford on a regular basis. I think this is the kind of history that's coming forward really all over the country and all over certainly the, in the north. Now, this project is a really cutting-edge project for Connecticut. There have been similar projects in Providence, Rhode Island, and I think uh, there's a cemetery that's been studied like this in New Hampshire. But it is kind of shocking because if you're from Connecticut, you think of us as a blue state, as a liberal state, mm -hmm. and it's uh, very surprising to, to really understand the depth of slavery and what it was like in that early period. I think that um, Ann Farrow, you know, did a remarkable job in her, in her book uncovering the role of insurance companies and other businesses in Hartford in the slave trade. But the slave trade is still a bit removed for people. Like people can understand, okay, Connecticut businesses were involved in the trade. That doesn't mean there were enslaved people in Hartford on a day-to-day -day basis. But yes, there were. Um, and of course, not all African Americans remained enslaved. And there were, we have homeowners. Um, Philip Moore and his family for three generations owned land in what was then part of Hartford called Hockenham. It's now East Hartford. Um, but they were, they were there every day in Hartford, working, farming, going to the meeting house for services in the church. They were members of the church. So there's this daily interaction that's completely left out of our story. What time period would that be? All right, so Philip Moore 
was alive in the late 17th century, and he left a will in 1695, and then his wife had an estate administration in 1696, so we're still in the 17th century. His son, unfortunately, died in 1698, also left an estate administration. And then uh, the church records of their baptisms are all in the late 1690s uh, for for Philip Moore's grandchildren. And they go on to own land into the 1730s before they disappear from the record. So here's a three-generation family, African-American family, that, as you said, are property owners, they're farmers, they conduct business, they pass land on, and they're, they're free people. How do you think that the project will sort of change the way scholars think about Hartford history? I think, for one thing, scholars might start to feel there is a history here beyond just the odd smattering of names that are more well-known, like John Winthrop Jr. or or things like that, and and the enslaved people that he owned. Um, I think scholars are going to need to reckon with the extent of slaveholding by some of the ministers. Um, Timothy Woodbridge is a great example. He was a uh, president of Yale, and in Yale lore, he owned one indentured servant who was a native person named John Wobbin, and he maybe had another slave. That's just completely untrue. He had close to 30 enslaved people under his roof at various times. And and I think also there are people um, like a doctor named um, Norman Morrison, who lived in the mid-18th century, was involved in the slave trade. Um, he even has records in the Newport, Rhode Island uh, Historical Society in John Bannister's ledger where he's buying trinkets from England so that he can dabble in the slave trade in Africa, beads that he wants to exchange in Africa um, for enslaved people. And Morrison accumulated uh, a number of slaves through owning a share in a slave ship. And he, when he died, all of those enslaved people, or most of them, were on a farm in Bol- what is now Vernon, but was then Bolton. And those people were all sold to pay his family debts. Morrison died of smallpox in 1761. And we actually added uh, information to the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database, which is a database of all of the slave voyages to the Americas for the four centuries that slavery was legal um, in the Americas. And, you know, so that kind of thing we're uncovering, and there's more to be uncovered. I, I can't say that I definitively found everything there was to find. You know, that's a good point about this gentleman that owned this part of this uh, slave ship. Uh, slave, blah, blah. That's a good point about this gentleman owning part of a slave shipping business, because I think he's one of the gentlemen you have the relationship tree for. Yes. And he's got property from his maybe his townhouse in Hartford to farmland in two or three towns that we would consider separate towns now, as well as he's got enslaved people at all these different locations, and they have different connections to each other and different times that they were brought into this country, et cetera. And so that's where that relationship tree really struck me because he's got two and a half dozen enslaved people, but he's some of them you can actually say they were located in Hartford or they were located in Coventry or they were located in Bolton. 
And I found that just fascinating that this large group of people would have known each other, but they would have been spread out, right. and that his wealth allowed him to dabble in international shipping as well as local farming. He was, by profession, a medical doctor, and so it's just extraordinary how his business interests spread out. And of course, he owned people who were directly from Africa, but he probably also owned people who were acculturated um, in North America or in the Caribbean before he actually uh, owned them. What do you think is the biggest maybe idea or discovery so far to come out of the project? I think the biggest thing is the, the sheer magnitude of the presence of Native and African people in Hartford on a daily basis. They're, they're present in the society from day one, walking around, engaging with other people, intermarrying, um, drinking with other people. We have a story on the website called The Night Walkers um, about a group of servants who one night goes out and they get arrested for being past curfew and partying together. But it really shows how diverse the society was, but also how linked people were in that society. So, for example, the Nightwalkers all belong to white people who are themselves interrelated. They're brothers-in-law and sisters-in-law and things like that. And so the, the servants of the white people become friends because that's who they're connected to and how they find their social interactions. One of the things we're, that we were so excited about with this project was the fact that, as you said, it wasn't just produced as a spiral-bound report that sits on a shelf, that you have to know where to go find that information, pull it off the shelf, look it up in a report. Instead, it's on a beautiful website, which I'm going to ask you about in a second, that is completely open to the public. Yes. It's got outstanding original artwork from Cora Marshall, who is a PhD and a painter who uh, generously let us use some of her fabulous artwork to enliven the, the website, because you have to remember, this is before photography, so we don't have photographs of any of these individuals. So Cora Marshall's artwork certainly enlivens the website, and it's got so much information, and it's so easy to use. Not only did we blow past the 300 individual mark. We're almost at 500 individuals. And it you can go so easily from clicking a name directly that'll take you to Ancestry, that'll take you then to the exact documents that Kathy and her team found on that individual. So you can see why we think they're there, what their story is, why those connections can be made. And it's just it's, it, you'll spend hours on it once you once you go there and you start using it. But how do you think family historians and genealogists and descendants can use the website to really understand their family connections? Well, I think, for one thing, one of the reasons that we put everything on openancestry.com trees was so people who were already working on ancestry could link our information to their trees. And when you link a tree from ancestry to your own family tree, it won't necessarily import everything we have. So that's why we make it visible so you can copy any, any bit from the timeline or any of the bibliographic information so that you can access it yourself. I also think that, you know, we tried to go forward with families as far as we could um, in the limited time that we had, but this is going to allow 
people who are kind of working backwards from their own families, perhaps to find those earlier sources that would have been so difficult were they not a trained historian. Kathy, you worked with a really enthusiastic group of students from Central Connecticut State University. Tell us a little bit about your team and how they experienced this project. Yeah. Well, at first I want to say that the team really made the project possible. So when I was envisioning all of this, it was with the idea that I had people I could bring in who could do every part of this. And so first uh, was a librarian at CCSU's Burrett Library named Sharon Clapp, who had the digital experience to help transfer that database into something that would look beautiful, you know, where you could click on each name and see the data that we had collected without it being in a spreadsheet form. Then we had some graduates of our public history program or graduate students in our public history program. Allison Golem wrote a lot of the narratives for the site. Um, Stephen Arell, who, has, who also has a teaching degree and is doing a master's at CCSU, worked on the website, did a lot of the design for it. Uh, Gabe Benjamin, um, also a teacher and in public history, um, did the Ancestry.com setups. Um, Chelsea Echevarria did some of the story around the land use for the cemetery and the, and the land records and also helped with some of the narratives. Alexandra Maribel, who was a, an adjunct professor that I've worked with on our native studies, helped edit the site. She, she is a great proofreader, um, but she also contributed a lot of substantial information. Um, and then there's a person who has a bachelor's degree from our history department, Tavia Jefferson, who did extraordinary work in the archives with me. She was my main research assistant read a lot of documents in very difficult handwriting, um, had suggestions about where to go for more information, went to the Stowe House and looked at the Kingsbury census, etc. And lastly, but not least, um, Cora Marshall, who is Professor Emeritus from CCSU, former chair of the art department, who added such beautiful imagery. And Cora, Cora's paintings already existed. She didn't pay the special for the website, but what she had done for her own work was to go to runaway slave ads from the Connecticut newspapers. And so each one of the people that you see pictured here in some way corresponds to a historical person from the time period. May not be the person we're using her painting to illustrate, but she's painted an authentic representation. I think that's great. And certainly at Connecticut Explored, we love to see students, graduate students, professors, all here in Connecticut's heritage community making this kind of project possible. We have three important events coming up this fall, fall of 2019, that center around this project. The project is called Uncovering Their History, African, African American, and Native Americans Buried in Hartford's Ancient Burying Ground, 1640 to 1815. We have a six-page feature article in Connecticut Explored magazine, the fall 2019 issue, which will t amplify a lot of the things that Kathy just explained about the new website and about the project. We also have her lecture September 12th at 6 p.m., free to the public, at the Hartford History Center on Main Street in Hartford. Uh, and we have an in-depth workshop with Kathy. If you want to know more about the nuts and bolts of how to research the early African and Native 
communities in Hartford. The workshop is October 5th at 11 to 1. 11 to 1 at the Hartford History Center. That's free. The Hartford History Center will also be hosting an exhibit from September 1st to October 31st called Uncovering the Ancient Burying Ground. And they'll have early maps and photos that really give you a a sense of what the 400 years history of the Burying Ground is. Thank you so much for being our guest today. It's been a delight, and I hope to find people using the site. And if anyone would like to email me with questions, feel free. I'm a history professor at Central Connecticut State University, so I'm a public employee, and I'm happy to answer at least a few questions, uh, simple ones perhaps, um, at hermesk at ccsu.edu. And it's Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank our guest, Kathy Hermes. For more information, go to the new website at www.africannativeburialct.org. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. Subscribe to Connecticut Explored and get the upcoming winter issue with stories about events or inventions that disrupted history. Subscribe, buy back issues and collections, including a make-your-own collection at a special price at ctexplore.org. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.